Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Live Life Liberated podcast. I'm Wendy McConnell. Today, we will be speaking with Derek Myron and Sean Clark. Welcome, fellas. How you doing? Doing great, Wendy. How are you this morning? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Now, why don't you tell me a little bit about you guys, what you do, what your specialty is, and how fabulous you are? Well, gosh, a little self-promotion early in the morning. <laughs> uh, I'm here with uh, Sean Clark, Director of uh, Financial Planning here at Centura, and we help high net worth individuals, both C-level executives and founder-led business owners who have high income and net worth north of $20 million and helping them both with planning and investment management. So I'm here with my compadre, Mr. Clark. Good morning, Mr. Clark. Good morning, Derek. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Nice to be back on. Yes, Mr. sir. Always fun. So today, what are we going to be talking about today, Sean? So we're going to be talking about kind of unbundling the different services. So here at Centura, we work on planning and investments. And the I don't industry- think that's too un- unlike a lot of other firms, Sean. No, exactly. The industry has kind of, you know become uh, one and the same between a lot of different firms and what they offer. And so we're going to kind of explain what has happened from an industry standpoint over time, uh, how the different service offerings kind of came to be, where they are today, how we think about those things, and where we think things might go from here. So we'll talk all about that. Great. So uh, the audience should be ultra high net worth individuals, privately held founder-led business owners, and the advisory community who serves them. This podcast is informational purposes and nothing offered here today should not be considered advice. Okay, we got the lawyers out of the room. Uh, Sean, you're the uh, director of financial planning here. You see lots of different cases of people who are super high income, super high income and and newly getting becoming wealthy to people that are very, very large estates and very, very wealthy. Sure. And why don't you talk a little bit about the kind of the history of the assets under management fee model? That's become the norm today. I know I, I got started in the business. It seems like, well, it is a long time ago now. I'm dating myself. 90, 90, 1998 so my 25th year in the business. But that was, you know, that was just getting started in 1998. So why don't you right. talk a little bit about how did we get from commissions to here? Like what happened? Yeah. So just to set a little context for myself. So I joined the industry in 2006. I worked at broker dealers and insurance companies till 2017. In 2017, I joined you here at Centura and I've been in the RIA world ever since. So uh, I've worked for all three different types of firms and I'm going to talk about uh, those firms and kind of how they came to be and how the services have kind of gotten uh, developed over time, if you will. Okay. So I think uh, before we dive into investment management and planning, I think it's helpful to understand, understand where firms came from. So Back in mid-1800s, when there was Rockefeller-type money, the only people that really did planning or anything was trust and estates, right? You kind of had those uh, services in place for those really wealthy folks. Excuse me. In the mid-19 or late 1960s through the 1980s, really the financial planning industry began. And there was a group in Chicago that kind of got together, started creating different you know, accreditations and certifications and things. But what it was really doing is people were starting to make more money and some of the investment type philosophies, investing and making money or thinking about cash flow started to become important to people. So these planners got together and started to bring these services together. 
Okay. After that, the internet era kind of came about, right? So the internet came up and that sort of changed the dynamics. And then after the internet, RIAs really started to come in. And so I want to talk a little bit about how those things developed and why through the context of investments and planning. Okay. Okay. So let's give a quick, quick history lesson here. I know I, we call him the professor. He really likes this stuff. But how how do we do this quickly to get on the? Yeah. So like, let's just start in like the '80s. So you know, we we kind of got through the period where people are starting to make more money and planning and investments are coming to them. Okay. So let's start with that period. You know, you could watch movies like Wall Street or those kinds of things. And you back in those days, you could be a stockbroker. I could call you up, sell you a stock, and make a big commission just for for doing that. Right. Um, So that was kind of the early days of how do I bring investments to the common person? And for doing that, there weren't really efficient markets or tools where investors could do that on their own. So you needed a middleman and that was a broker. Right. So broker dealers really started to emerge at that point. And that is salespeople at firms offering products that their firms uh, endorse. And so stockbrokers, I think, is a good example of that uh, kind of in the early 80s and 90s. Okay, so that went away in the, probably mid to late 90s into the two. There were still some hanger oners, but uh, the RA industry really got ramped up when late 80s started, still, still infancy in getting through the 90s and didn't really take hold until the 2000s. That's right. So I think what's important, I mentioned it earlier, was the internet era, right? So the advent of the internet sort of changed things. That created Access to information. Exactly. So now the, the average person didn't necessarily need that broker to get certain investments. they could. Well, I think a couple of things though, went from decimals, right? To fractions, right? I mean, you went to, I mean, excuse me, from fractions to decimals. In terms right? of the commission. Right, and the commissions, yes. which really, and information became far more available. Correct. Right? And the way to actually, with the internet, now you can set up your own accounts, right? right. That's mean, right. So. Yeah, I mean, in the early days of the internet, you had discount brokers, you still had the full service brokers, right? They were offering different services and that created sort of that fee competition that you're discussing. Yep. And that got rid of commissions on the brokerage side, started doing lower cost trades. People started doing stuff on their own. Then the information came in and now they're like, man, I can really do this, right? There was lots of competition out there. So all of that led to exactly what you're describing. And I think through that internet period, it became, you know, margins on the investments were coming down for these investment firms. And they started to think about how can we make those up? And I think there's a lot of pieces around the fiduciary standard that started to give rise where, you know, acting in the best interest of a client became important. And so thinking about the entirety of their financial situation and assets sort of, I think, gave rise to the next phase, which is really the RIAs. And we'll talk about that. But So you mentioned a fiduciary standard. Prior to that standard was what a more of a suitability type suitability standard. standard. Yeah. Whereas, you know, as long as an investment was suitable, given the context of what I know about you and facts and circumstances, then I could recommend it. Right. Yeah. So then gives way to the fiduciary standard, which says I need to provide you the best in class of whether it be an asset from an investment standpoint or a fee service, I got to find you the best in class. Exactly. And that's why RIAs really were able to spring up. Because, what is an RIA? So an RIA is a registered investment advisor. And starting in 2001 till present, it's been a compound annual growth rate of over 8% in the industry. So it's been significant growth. And in my opinion, the reason why is because RIAs typically offer fee-based services. And so they'll charge a fee, talk more about that. They could earn commissions on insurance and things, but typically it's fee-based advice. 
and they're going to act in the best interest of their clients, which means they're going to gather all the facts, assumptions, and goals, and then look at the world of investments and opportunities out there to choose what is in their best interest, not necessarily just what their firm has endorsed, uh, which would fall more to the suitability standard. So it really opened up the opportunities and became much more objective in terms of the advice that was being delivered. Regarding the investments, we've been speaking about the investments. Correct. So let's pivot over to the planning. I know that here at our firm, we we break down planning between above line and below line services. Yeah. Why don't we spend a moment about that? What are the below line services that we say are necessary, but don't pro- they provide incremental value, but don't provide exponential value? I think the below the line services, in my view, really support the investment direction. It's things like cash flow planning, asset allocation, asset location, and some stress testing. So that lets you understand enough about a client's situation to make some investment recommendations and typically be within the ballpark of uh, of where you, you know, where you need to be. And so uh, that's below the line planning, those types of services. And and it's helpful. It helps keeps you on track at where you're headed. You're, you're on a trip and you want to use a sailing analogy. You're jibing and tacking back and forth across that straight line. You want to stay as close to that line as possible because we know in geometry, the straightest, the quickest distance between two points is a straight line. So you want to go back and forth across that line to make, and, and those things do that. All those, those below the line services For that sure. we and say, it's incremental value. Yeah, there's definitely value there. And that's in the eye of the beholder. Some may get more value out of that than others. But there is, yeah, we call it incremental or marginal value. Yeah. So what is the above the line? Just sounds better. Above the line. <laughs> we we called it above the line. But it's really talking about three things. Income tax planning, wealth transfer planning, and then balance sheet optimization. And so this is really bringing in the world of CPAs and tax. Income tax planning. Doesn't doesn't my CPA do that? <laughs> We've talked about this on prior podcasts and dug into it in much more depth. So check those out if you're more interested. But in our view, CPAs are really mostly involved in compliance work. Uh, you know, they look backwards and maybe at this year, maybe one year forward, but they're not really in forward looking tax consulting. We found very few that are. And so that's really where we think the opportunity is from an income tax standpoint is this year plus the next five, 10 and how does that look for you? And what can we do to plan around that? What are the tools available yeah. in looking out on the horizon? You next mentioned wealth transfer planning. Don't most estate planning attorneys do that? They do. And they do a good job. I think most, generally speaking, do a good job. In my experience, and I think our collective experience, what we find is that they don't maybe don't have the amount of time necessary to spend with the clients to really get a full and complete picture of the facts, assumptions, and goals. And so they tend to work more on like a transaction basis or a one-off. And so they may do a great job on that transaction, but it may be at the expense of something else going on in the estate and they may not even be aware of that. So I think the ability to shed light and information, uh, particularly around facts, assumptions, and goals can really help wealth transfer specialists do an even better job than they do. I couldn't agree more. I think that the estate planners we work with across the country are very, very uh, delighted that we have spent the laboring or of gathering it all, putting it all together so that they can really have a whole picture and create more well-crafted estate plans. I wholeheartedly agree. What's the, what's the third thing in the above the line? That- balance sheet optimization. Right? Back, does that mean? <laughs> so if you look at someone's balance sheet uh, and kind of separate it from a tax sheltered to you know taxable estate perspective, th- there's all kinds of things that are often 
amiss or could be improved or optimized or laid out in different ways. So it could just be assets registered wrong or beneficiaries that are missing, but it could be more complex, like owning certain assets in the estate or out of the estate that should be in a different place. So managing their debt, uh, what vintage, you know, especially with where interest rates are, how it could be all kinds of different things about assets and liabilities. Are we being super efficient? Have we thought about this and, and are we accomplishing what we're trying to accomplish the most efficient way possible. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot that goes into that, but it's really rounding out kind of all of the the other pieces that where things could fall through the cracks. Yeah. So that above the line planning we say is exponential, can provide exponential to, to the right set of clients. Yeah. Uh, right. So the, the people that we take on are people where we can see where we can add exponential value. And, yeah. and that really changes the facts, right? If you compare and contrast that for the below the line, below the line has a certain set of facts they work with and they model. But if you can change that fact set by doing things in advance of that, particularly around income tax planning, as an example, you can change the the fact set and the entire game altogether. So it's really important to start there because it becomes an input for cash flow planning, investments and other stuff that goes on. 100%. So <clears throat> oftentimes... We hear that uh, a lot of firms, most firms, offer planning. Now, planning is a nebulous word. Planning could be going to the supermarket. Planning could be, you know, how do we how do we uh, do our RMD distributions? Right. How do we how do we do year end tax harvesting? I mean, planning means so many different things right. to so many different people. But I often hear competitors that say, we bundle planning with our asset management services. And I always wondered to myself, why? Why is that? I can offer my perspective on it. I sure. think on that side. But I think, you know, investments are a competitive game, right? Uh, there's a lot of... What do you mean by that? I mean, offering investments as a fee source, as, as a consultant to advise... To- yeah, if I'm going to manage your money, and I'm going to add value, meaning outperform some benchmark that you could do on your own. That's a, you know, there's a lot of firms that try to do that and it's very competitive. And there's not a lot of managers out there that outperform the benchmark significantly year over year. And I think the access to information for consumers has uh, helped them understand that. And so they're, you know, they're skeptical, but there's, they're also, it just takes time to earn the trust uh, when you're talking about an investment relationship or an asset management relationship in my experience. And so anything you can do to quicken that trust or value is beneficial, right? So if I'm trying to sell my investment services to you and I can offer you some complimentary services, particularly around planning or maybe some trust type, wealth transfer type guidance uh, that's just basic, then I can potentially add free value to you. And if, and that may incentivize you to actually give me the asset management business. Okay. So it's a... It's service offering to do enough to earn the asset management business. In my experience, that's yeah. that's what it's been. There may be completely other cases and others may view it differently, but that's what, you know, from my perspective, sitting in that seat and offering planning in with an asset management fee, that was really, hey, here's what I can do for you over and above just the investments. I can really help build a cash flow plan or income plan and make sure the investments support that and line up to it and all that kind of stuff. Why should a client, why is a client, in our, in our opinion, d- delineating services and having the services stand on their own for doing asset management? What is the fee we're charging for the asset management? Does it stand on its own relative to the benchmark based on what it is you're trying to do? We think it should be able to stand on its own. Correct. 
the planning services should be billed separately and should stand on their own as well. And oftentimes we don't, most often we don't see that. We see that they're bundled. And what we have most often see also is they do enough that to get the relationship, to get the AUN, the assets under management, and it's called good enough planning. That's uh, right. There, there's no additional incentive unless there's additional assets or they have something big going on, but there's no additional incentive to spend time there helping them. And so why do we think clients are better served that those services should be split and be able to stand on their own? I think from my perspective, it becomes much more objective and measurable, right? You can look at if you're going to charge me for planning, what value are you going to provide me for planning? And if you're not going to provide me value there, do I need it? You know, if you're going to charge me for investment management, what's the value I'm going to get there? And I think that that's fair for consumers to be able to have that information and understand what their options and choices are and where, based on their facts and circumstances, value can be added. Uh, it's a little bit different that way versus if it's all bundled together, it's it's harder as a consumer to understand, am I getting investment value? Am I getting planning value? Is it just the service and the fact I like this guy or what is the value? And it just becomes harder to quantify, in my opinion. I think what you're speaking about is a very clear, delineated value proposition. That's right. What is the value proposition for planning? Exactly. I'm paying X. I'm supposed to get Y. Did I get Y? What are the different things that add up to Y for the planning value prop? So exactly it could right. be income tax savings. It could be more efficiency about the overall balance sheet. It could be laboring or of coordination. Mm -hmm. It could be managing my professional. It could be all of the these and more what you need as a consumer. But right. what goes into the value proposition for planning? I'm paying X, I'm getting Y, is it a good value? Yep. Same thing on the investment side. What is the value prop there? I'm paying you X. You're supposed to be able to meet this kind of composite index. This is what I want to hear the measures of risk, whether it be peak to drop drawdown. I don't want it to be more than this, or I don't want my cash flow interrupted, or whatever those risk measures are. Great. Am I meeting those? Mm -hmm. And then am I meeting the return assumptions measured to some kind of benchmark. That's right. So delineating those two and separating those two into with clearly defined value propositions is probably, I think clients are going to feel better about the about the consumer experience. I think so. You know, it's, it's more clear where they're getting value from and what the value of those services are. I mean, it'd be weird. There's other industries we could think of, right? Like getting an oil change and then throwing in all kinds of things like a car wash or tire rotation and other kinds of stuff. And if they're like, we throw that in for free in addition to the oil change, you might think to yourself, why are you any good at the oil change? Like, <laughs> uh, what's going on there? It would cause me if I came back and you said, hey, by the way, I did these other things. I'm like, <laughs> I would be a little bit skeptical about your ability to change the oil. Right. It's just a little weird. We'd want yeah. to clarify that right? yeah. and make sure. And if the other stuff's there, then what are you doing that for? You go to the dentist and he says, all right, get changed behind that sheet. You're <laughs> like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Where? What am I doing here? It's right? Different. <laughs> different experience. <laughs> that Not needed. <laughs> I hear you. you know it, what I mean? do, so it does seem, it seems odd. I, I think in financial services, 
people want to spend time with prospects to build that relationship of trust. And so by spending the time, they're they're fostering, building, and getting to know more about that person. And then planning kind of facilitates that, but may be helpful, but may not it may not run with the course of services over time after after they've landed the assets. That's right. You know, something that comes to mind is even conglomerates. You look back, we talked about history a little bit, but back in the 80s and stuff, corporate conglomerates was sort of sold as a way to, you know, diversify risk, get into different industries, all this kind of stuff. And then as investors could kind of get access to different investments, they're like, well, do I really need this company and all these industries where they're not specialists running these companies, or should I just be able to buy individual companies and stocks that do that on my own, right? And, it's, and I think consumers over time generally like to be able to be in control, have some ability to pick and choose where they see value and where they see a lack of value. And and I think what we're talking about here kind of aligns with the spirit of consumers and what they want. And so I think that, you know, going forward, I wouldn't be surprised if you see an unbundling of, of services and more and more firms starting to charge or even specialize in different areas where they maybe can add value uh, versus areas they can't. And I think the industry is going to change in some of those ways. Yeah. So, you know, you've heard over the last decade or so that there is fee compression, mm-hmm. but then the actual, the data has come in, the studies are not showing a lot of fee compression. No, it's been pretty flat, right? And pretty flat. Yeah. You're seeing a lot of firms add additional bundling of services, but you're seeing the fees charged about the same. Right. Seems, seems odd. And I think we should uh, delineate between the net worth and incomes of people. And so when we're talking about people that have incomes north of call it $2 million in taxable income, those are the people that we think that really need income tax planning mm-hmm. and to, to look at your overall situation. And and typically those people have net worth 20 million and higher. Th- those are the people that we believe for the most part really can benefit from planning, largely income tax planning, uh, wealth transfer planning, balance sheet optimization. They they really can benefit by those services. For, for people that are significantly less wealthy, maybe the bundling of services is okay, but I think you need to be aware that, look, it's a good enough, they're doing enough. Um, you know, we're, we're interviewing a lot of planners elsewhere across the country and and one big firm has bought another big firm and when they've got there they said no this is how we do it we're not. and uh, we see a, a fair bit of frustration we've probably talked to at least 10 different planners that are planning on going to it somewhere else and like they don't really have the same standard of care that i had with the last place and so that's causing frustration i think that's pretty widespread i think that that that's yeah. what i see so yeah i think that that's fair you know the Folks, I agree with your assessment of $2 million in income and above and call it $20 million of net worth because they have enough tax pain and enough assets to utilize the tools that at least we are aware of and specialize in to be able to bring to them for uh, for results. And you're right, maybe below that where those tools aren't applicable, maybe you do need some other services thrown in there in order to uh, justify the cost or you know, otherwise cost goes down and maybe those things are put back on the consumer to do themselves and there's value there. So you're right. Maybe bundling those things in a different segment works. And if we extract the segment that we work with, which is the high income, high net worth group that we've described here, that's where I think there's a lot more tools that are available and applicable. And that's really where, when we talk about game changing results and all that kind of stuff, it it really lies. So it's probably not for 
for everybody. And I agree the, the industry may be different in that regard. So, so we hear a lot about that. The, the AUM fee model is dead. Like this is going to change. It's dead. Can you talk a little bit about that? I see a fair bit of press around that. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's something like this. I think if you look at RIAs, there are uh, a minority that charge for planning services. So most of them still charge for AUM. The broker dealers still charge, you know, fees for AUM. And there's also commissions tied in in different firms in different ways. But if you think about the AUM fee model, I think what we will, in my opinion, what we'll ultimately get to is a little bit more of a bifurcated service line where you at least do have some idea of what the value is or what the time commitment is that you may have from a particular group. And they may charge the same fee, but it may be allocated to the different services differently or something of that nature. But I think as a whole, in order for advisors to have enough meat on the bone to really spend the time studying investments and markets and taxes and all that kind of stuff and to put it to work for clients, they do need to have a certain level of compensation. And that compensation, whether it's all charged on the assets or whether it comes from a combination of assets and fees for planning, I think that will vary by firm. But overall, I see the the overall spirit of the AUM model staying intact. It may come from different areas, but I think largely that's what supports advisors and gives them the incentive to go to bat for clients and really do a great job. And absent that, uh, they, they maybe don't have the incentive to do that. And you maybe get less than stellar results. And personally, you know, I would, I would rather pay for quality results if that's what's going to be there. And I think as a whole, there's been a lot of studies out there showing that advisors do add value and do add, uh, pay for their fee and then some. So I know here at Centura, we always talk about how do we cover the cost of our services, whether it's through fee negotiations or strategic type moves or you're talking about on the asset management side. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the AUM fee model, I think, is is the spirit of that's going to stay intact, but you may see it bifurcated out a little bit with other service lines like planning or maybe even insurance or something like that, consulting type stuff. Okay. So let's help consumers. Like, what should they do? You know, maybe I have an advisor, I have a CPA, I have a state planning attorney. I think I'm being underserved. I mean, we wholeheartedly agree. 90 most people we meet are way underserved. Um, what should they do? Like, give me the steps, steps one, two, three. Ask questions first. Yeah. If you have professionals in your life, ask some questions. So, you know, ask your CPA, do they do consulting work or is it all compliance? Understand the nature of their business, right? Okay. Uh, same thing with your estate planning attorney. Ask, you know, what types of transactions they do. Are they down the middle? Do they like to get into the gray? Understand a little bit about them and and where they fall. Right. I think those are things that are important to understand the professional team that you're working with. So how about a needs analysis? How do they do a self-assessment needs analysis on what they need? That you know, I think there's good information out there. It may be a little bit harder. I think, you know, from our perspective, we we kind of look at it as above the line pain or need, right? So you have tax pain as an example. Income tax pain. Right. So if you feel like, God, I'm paying a heck of a lot in income tax and I'd really like to see if I could do something about it, uh, that may be a question to start with your CPA or, you know, tax counsel, whoever that is, to see are they the person that could help you with that? At the same time, if you feel like 
you have anxiety over where the uh, state tax exemption levels are or where your the size of your estate's going to be and you have curiosity around wealth transfer or putting things in place for charity or your children or anything like that um, I think it's important to interview, you know, your estate planning attorney. And and sometimes people don't have one or don't know where to start, right? And in that case, who do you ask? So in those cases, a financial advisor could be very helpful mm-hmm. because the financial advisor can sort of sort of serve as the hub in this hub and spoke type relationship, right? You have these different professionals that sit on these different spokes, but an advisor can sit right in the center. And so if you're going to work with an advisor, they can help you interview those professionals. That's the services that we provide, for example, to help qualify and vet and try to get the needs analysis done. So I think if you're comfortable on your own assessing what your tax pain is and how your professional roster may be able to serve that, then that would be the way to go and ask some questions. And if you find that you aren't in a position to do that on your own, then working with a financial advisor may be very fruitful for you. And then it gets into how is that advisor compensated, right? Are they going to ask for your assets right up front in order to work with you? Are they going to charge you a planning engagement to understand what's going on in your situation and how to help you or something else, right? So there's different ways that an advisor may work with you. And that gets to the spirit of what we're talking about here. So I think understanding your situation, being able to communicate that to a capable advisor who has a network of professionals may be a good way to go there. So just to recap, I think it's doing a self-assessment on what your needs are. Then it's asking the professionals that are currently serving you. And really, the question should be around process. Great. Do you do income tax planning? Okay. Tell me about your process, whether Mm -hmm. CPA or your your, uh, financial advisor. Same with um, the other things that are going on for yourself. Like I need a full insurance review, whatever it is that is needed is great and what is the process by by which you get to answers to figure out okay what are the options that should be considered that's very important yeah because that's how they're going to work with you and give you kind of an idea of what that experience is going to look like and if they can't articulate the process or they don't do it all the time that may be insightful and if they can lay it out exactly what they do and show you that's also very telling so i think that's a great way to understand what they or how they do what they say they do okay Let's talk as a final leg here today about income tax planning around people that own their business. Oftentimes, I I had a call this morning. Hey, I'm I'm really thinking about selling my business. I'd heard about this the last couple of months, but I've got three or four people that are significant people that don't own shares. And we'd shared, look, you're going to end up, they're going to pay ordinary income tax. You're going to compensate them at closing. Like, oh, man, I I, I would love a, a solution around that. I think that oftentimes clients are have no idea what the value of their business is. Mm-hmm. And they're ill-prepared, not often, almost always ill-prepared for that out-of-the-blue offer, mm-hmm. right? So what do you recommend clients that have, you know, they're, they have a uh, founder-led business and they don't have a plan. What do you think those folks ought to do? What What are the questions they should be asking their CPA and financial advisor to make sure that they are prepared? So I think a lot of the spirit of it gets into, it starts with what we're discussing, right? So starting with the either the CPA or the financial advisor, understanding, are they compliance oriented? Are they consulting oriented? And are they looking at your situation on a go forward basis? So 
that out of the blue offer could happen at any point, right? A lot of the business owners that we work with maybe say, I'd like to exit this business in five years, but who knows what may happen before then or after, right? So nothing ever works out exactly the way they plan it. And from that standpoint, we call it the gold period, which is before you have any offers on the table, any LOIs, right? It's it's before you've even thought about the sales stuff, but it's setting things up the right way. And that's the time when you can really work in an objective way with proper counsel, whether it's your CPA or uh, your advisor, even your estate planning attorney, other attorneys, but you can really lay out the facts, assumptions, and goals and start asking those questions around what's possible. And when you start to understand what's possible, then you get information and you can make informed decisions about what's best for you and your family or your facts and circumstances, however you think about it. But I think that's the the point is to get in, get started before you have any inkling of a sale that's going on, which would be in that gold period to say, what's important to me if this does happen? It's kind of scenario modeling, if you will, to, to walk through that future event, see how you'll feel, see how your employees would feel and really visualize what's that like and how would it be? And is it set up today to do what you want to do? And that's where you can have legacy planning, all kinds of other stuff that gets involved with that. But Mm -hmm. I think the business owners that do that and ultimately experience that event are very happy with the results. Well, this has been very interesting today talking about the financial planning models and asset management models and how they bundle at most firms bundle those services together. We think for people that are have reached a certain level of income and net worth should really consider about having those services separated so that you really have a benchmark as to what it is your, you know, what are the metrics that you're trying to achieve for each of those service lines and fees that you are paying. Give us a final last thought, Sean, in closing today. Yeah, I I think it's just that, you know, the world of financial advice is complicated. There's all kinds of stuff, income tax, wealth transfer taxes, investments, etc. I think there's a lot of folks out there that uh, maybe think they could do it themselves or even have even done a good job of it themselves. But once you get to a certain level of net worth or complexity, it really comes down to will, skill and time. And if you don't have the desire to do it, you feel like you don't have the skill to do it, or if you feel like you just don't want to or have the time to do it, then it's really uh, a point in your t- life when you should get a financial uh, advisor involved and help and have them help you go through this process if you don't already have those professionals or those folks to lean on. And if you do, work with them, lean on them, and uh, have them help you because they're out there and you know they charge for services. They do, but that's to incentivize them to do a great job for you. And I wholeheartedly believe that we do, and I know other advisors do as well. So if you find your scale self-lacking, will skill or time to do the planning and investments, go talk to somebody, ask some questions, find someone to help you because there's value to be had. Get a second opinion. Yeah. Words to live by. Sean, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Derek. Wendy, thank you for hosting us today on the Live Life Liberated podcast. Any final message from you, Wendy? Well, I would like to know how someone can get in touch with Centura Wealth Advisory. I think it's best to go to our website and you can find us at Centura Wealth, C-E-N-T-U-R-A Wealth, W-E-A-L-T-H.com, CenturaWealth.com. And uh, take it a little easy on Sean. You're just hammering him with questions, just hammering him. Good fun. I like it. Sean, thanks for being with us today. Wendy, thanks for hosting us today. And the last thank you always goes to you, the listening audience. 
thank you for listening to us today. And uh, we hope to see you on the next podcast on the Live Life Liberated podcast. Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results. 